The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we are delighted to be joined by Alf Dubbs. Lord Alf Dubbs is one of our most respected political figures, a child refugee who fled the Nazis before World War II and went on to become an MP, a Minister for Northern Ireland and a member of the House of Lords. He is a tireless campaigner for refugee rights and now a patron for many charities working in the field. Lord Dubbs, welcome to Table Talk. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. We're going to start where we always do, at the very beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? I was, because I lived in Czechoslovakia in Prague until I was six years old when I came to Britain on a kinder transport. I suppose my early memories of food were some of the dishes we had at home. I'm not sure how much one normally remembers of food before one is six, but I suppose I remember, it's not a very Czech dish, Wiener Schnitzel, I remember some egg dishes, and I remember goulash. And those are the memories that go back, and they've stayed with me, because I still eat those sort of things now. And do you have any memories of what mealtimes were like when you were in Prague? Do you know, I have very few memories of mealtimes. Maybe the, the sort of shock of coming to Britain and so on has, has erased the earlier memories. My father was was in business, small business, so... Yeah, we'd, we'd sit around the table, I remember that. I, in fact, I've been down the street where we used to live, and uh, I have sort of vague memories of that. I think I have better memories of when we went on holiday. We went on holiday either to Austria or then we went to Hungary after the Germans occupied Austria in, in, in 38. And I remember the sort of meals there, and sitting, sitting in the hotel in the garden and having rather nice food. But, you know, that was for a four-year-old or a five-year-old. What do I think about the food I had then? Not very much. It's understandable. <laughs> And when you came to the UK, famously you came on Kinder Transport, is it right that you were given a sort of knapsack of food to bring with you? My mum packed a knapsack of food because the journey was two days. So she gave me a knapsack of food, which was basically sandwiches. Well, as I discovered when I got to London, or as my father discovered, there was salami and you know ham and stuff, like, sausages and stuff like that. I got to London and I was you know cleared through all the systems of ticking off and my dog tag and so on uh, and my father looked at my knapsack and, and the food was all there untouched and he said you haven't eaten anything and of course I'm, I'm not aware I hadn't eaten anything so it must have been a sign of it was slightly traumatic the whole thing mm. but anyway I hadn't eaten any of it and he loved it loved it he loved <laughs> central European sausages and things he loved it <laughs> and what what are your first memories of what food was like when you arrived in the UK well the war started s- soon afterwards so my first memories were really rationing and the fact that we were very limited, and I would, when I got a little bit older, I would, my mum would send me down, down to deal with the rations. And the rations were, there were some basic things, like you got to answer the butter a week or whatever it was, and so on. And there were certain things you got on points. This is very boring, by the way. No, no, it's there fascinating. Certain, certain things you got on points, and the points you could spread across sardines and cornflakes and things like that. So my mum sent me out, and I, I chose these things from the local, this is Manchester, in the, in, in the local grocery shop. And that was quite a challenging thing to do. But one of my memories was that in 1942, every child in Britain, as I remember, had got three oranges, the first we'd had for three years. And I remember these, oh, it's wonderful. Three oranges, each child, fantastic. 
And what sorts of dishes was your mum cooking when she was based in Manchester? Well, I spent part of the time at a boarding school run by the Czech government. So we had proper Czech food, I mean, little Czech food, dumplings and all, all that sort of thing. And they managed, despite the rationing, to, to produce really quite good stuff. So my, my mum so was only in the school holidays with my mum, and it, it was fairly, fairly basic things because of what could be obtained in, in the rationing system. And I remember one, sorry, I remember one occasion, my mum went, for some reason, some cafe we went to, because she was working in the school holidays, and she took me with her, and it was supposed to be scrambled eggs in this cafe you got. And, and they gave us entirely, the, they'd got reconstituted potato instead of egg or something like that. They got it completely wrong. <laughs> but that was, by the way, no, I mean, f- fairly basic things. I have boiled eggs and, uh, and things like that. But at the Czech school, the food was pretty good. You know, we had proper dumplings and we had a whole range of Czech dishes, which was a remarkable tribute to how they could do that in the face of rationing. And after the Czech school, you went to Chidelheim That's right. Secondary School, is well, that right? Well, I went to lots of schools, but yes, I did, yes. <laughs> Once you went to the non-Czech schools, yeah. what was food like there? Were you having Manchester school dinners in the 1940s? Yeah, well, they were. Well, I boarded there because, for domestic reasons, my mum, but I boarded there and... Yeah, it, it was all right. It wasn't very exciting because school food isn't very exciting and if you have it three times a day, it's not wonderful. I mean, it's fairly fairly basic stuff, but it sounds good when I describe it now. You, you know, bits of lamb or, or minced beef or things like that. And, and I don't remember any of the meals except that they weren't... They didn't excite me very much, I have to say. It was lovely when I was at home and my, my mum would give me nicer things, the things that I like more. Am I right in thinking you used to go on holiday to Blackpool... My mum, well, she took me to St Anne's, yeah. Yeah, we had a week in, in Lytham St Anne's, just near Blackpool. But that was all fish and chips. <laughs> You're a fan of fish and chips? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, one of my favourite restaurants in Hammersmith is, or cafe, is, is a fish and chip place, which I, I, I got better stories later. <laughs> but, but we had a week in St Anne's. And I know when it was. It was a week when the 1945 general elections results came out. That's, that's, that's how I know which week it was, because there was no television in those days. And we went, they sent me. This is an anti-conservative story. Does this work in this spectator? <laughs> anyway, and the, this boarding house. And because of the way the army votes were coming in late, the votes weren't counted till six weeks after election day because of the ballot papers coming in from the Far East. And the result is they started counting in the morning, so there's no overnight thing. And so the first results were coming out about midday. And no television, so the BBC were, were announcing it in the middle of the square. And the people in the bed and breakfast place sent me there for, um, to get the action results. And I came back joyfully, and they said, what's happened? I said, well, it's, it's Labour 150, or something like Labour 130, and Conservatives 20. And I heard a voice say, oh, my God, it's the end of England. <laughs> <laughs> so that's... Anyway, you can see where my politics were. <laughs> But it was a bed and breakfast, I think it was bed and breakfast, or did we have an evening meal? But it was it was the usual basic stuff. And there were things like, it's coming back to me, the wartime stuff that we got, we got there was a lot of spam, and, uh, you know, cold meat. And there was, um, I think we had whale meat at one point even, whale meat steaks, the government was trying to push on it. This was in the immediate post-war period, uh, whale meat steaks, they weren't great. Do you think the food was worse in that kind of immediate post-war period than during the war well it wasn't any better and things like chocolate you got sort of one bar of chocolate every few weeks so you know you know because we none of us put on weight because you couldn't because <laughs> but, but 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 yeah and some of the things which we take totally for granted you know like the oranges and so on they, they were 
you know, you couldn't get fruit juice. Or, yeah. well, I, don't, I don't think so. Anyway, you couldn't get proper fruit juice and things like that. And So it was all mainly local stuff because it all had to be brought with convoys across the Atlantic. And then the immediate post-war period, rationing continued. So I thought f- food wasn't great. I mean, I, my mum took me to a cardoma in the middle of Manchester and it was just sort of, you know, sort of cheese on toast. And it wasn't, wasn't great cheese on toast. <laughs> so so I, I have memories like that. Nothing, nothing great in terms of gastronomy, but then you wouldn't expect it in a period of rationing. Would you? No, and and do you think your experience of living in a period of rationing has sort of guided how you see food through the rest of your life? I think it must have done. Yes, I think it has done because because I wasn't except in Prague, and I don't remember the food there really, but although it was quite good, except in Prague. Then once I got to Britain, and it was war, or immediately the post-war, and I think there wasn't much gastronomic pleasure in, in all that. It was functional and it was basic and it was healthy. You know, we didn't, know, we didn't overeat, we didn't get all fat. Mm. Uh, it's a generation where we stayed, well, oh, <laughs> but it certainly, it certainly didn't give me any great aspirations about food till later in life. And tell us about what food looked like for you when you left home. You studied at the LSE. Could you cook when you went to university? No. No, I couldn't uh-huh. cook. No, I couldn't cook. Well, I tell you why, because I'd spent a lot of time in a boarding school, and therefore mm. you don't you don't learn a lot of basic things. You don't learn to cook, and you don't learn how to sew buttons on. You know things you don't learn. I to didn't do. even have that excuse. Well, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so, but anyway, you don't you don't learn to cook till till a bit later. And I was in a I was for two or three years. I was in a hall of residence, and we had all the food provided. You know, and and that was very pretty. It's all right. It was quite basic stuff, but it, it was pretty good. The breakfast was typical. You know, bacon eggs and things. And then at lunchtime, middle of the day, we we would in the LSE cafeteria, and that was not great. Again, I'm really implying I had a terribly deprived gastronomic childhood, didn't I? Oh, I think most. I mean, it's, I think it's quite normal to, <laughs> if you've lived under rationing, to not to not have had a kind of huge gastronomic sort of tour. All the better food came later. Yeah, well, I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, well, obviously, you'd moved from Manchester to London. Did you sort of notice that food was different in London or, or was the food sort of much the same and then it's uh, I improved think it, over the years? I think at LSE it was... Uh, no, I don't think I noticed it very much, really. And tell us about entering the world of politics and particularly kind of the world of food and drink through politics. Was, was there kind of lots of lots of events to go to and lots of people to meet well, over there, drink? There were more... more well, when I, the sequence of events was because I was in the Commons... I don't know about much gastronomy there. Lots of meals, but then I, then I lost my seat, and I, I was head of the refugee council. And, and then I went, then I went, was put in the Lords, and I went to Northern Ireland. And really, it was then. I don't know what it is about the Lords, but you get invited to more meals. You know, you get invited to, to more nice meals, and so it really took off then. Particularly, particularly in Northern Ireland, where the quality of the food is absolutely superb. I mean, the stuff is locally grown, and the meat is excellent. And my problem was. That apart from the peace process and the leading up to the Good Friday Agreement, I had two big departments, and one of them was agriculture. And I always had to eat that which the farmers felt was most under pressure. So all that happened was you'd gone far, I had to go on farm visits, and you'd go on a farm visit, and first of all they'd say, when did you go on your first farm visit, when you, when you got to Belfast? And they said, well, it took me about two days. What kept you so long? Anyway, and then, then you'd go along, and you have your first farm visit of the day, first farm day, and she'd she'd have made scones and blah 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 blah, blah and you'd eat all that and eat a lot and blah, 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 really delicious. 
next time visit, I made you some scones. I said, I can't, I made them specially for you. <laughs> so the, the warning I got before I set off for Belfast, when, when I was appointed to go there, was, watch out, it'll take you four weeks to put on the Stormont stone. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it literally, you just can't help it. So you go on these farm visits, and you, you know every farmer they produce something, and they've made it, and they've baked, and you have to eat it. And then we, we stayed as the ministerial team. The, the Secretary of State stayed at Hillsborough, and the rest of us stayed in a place called Stormont House. Except one of us was always on duty at the weekends, and we were at Hillsborough. And then we tended to do our own, our own catering. They, they could have, it could have been done for us, but we had our own. But Stormont House food was quite good. It was a sort of a average hotel but but it was all ministerial and some of the senior officials and we'd sit there and we'd talk politics and we'd talk about the day some of us would be in London it was all you never knew who was going to turn up and then Hillsborough was nice to have, have one's own castle but the, adjacent to the castle but in the castle grounds it was a which is where we preferred to stay. We could do our own cooking. And they would, you just tell them what you wanted and they'd buy the food for you. So you'd have it all in there on a Friday evening before the duty weekend. So that, that was quite good. But the best was some of the events, events I went to. And I think I had the best meal of my life once. We had some friends over. You could have friends over on a duty weekend. So the four of us went. We we're going to have a good dinner in the evening. We went down to Strangford Lock in County Down. And... Um, there's a pub there. I thought we were going to have some sandwiches there. And we had my two police guys, you know, my two close protection officers mm. with me. And we got there, and the guy was obviously knew who I was. Ah, he said, You want sandwiches? I've got some longestine. They came out of the loch this morning. And we just had them with garlic and butter, and we had little bibs on. And I, I tell you, even if you think you've had good longestine, this beat it. it for freshness, it just come out the loch. It was one of the most delicious meals. I'd ever had. I mean, it took the whole afternoon and, and didn't have enough for my two police guys, but the rest of the four of us were there. Ah, superb. And then about three days later, I was on a fishery protection vessel going down the loch and we stopped as a fisherman there. And what are you, what are you catching? He said, oh, mainly black crabs. He said, but I occasionally get some longestine. I said, great. I had some in a hotel over there the last uh, Saturday evening or last Sunday or whatever. And he said, uh, yeah, he said, that I, I, I supply him with them, but I bet you paid a lot more for them than he paid me. <laughs> but it was just to see the fisherman who caught them, was catching them, and they were so delicious. They were absolutely... Out. And no wonder, they nearly, they always doesn't have any, because people from Dublin phone up, and if he's got any in, they, they, drive, they drive up from Dublin. And he just by some coincidence, they got these, got these out of the lock that morning, and this was, it was lunchtime on Sunday, and it was absolutely superb. One of the meals of my life... Uh, there's another gastronomic occasion. As agriculture minister, there's an annual agricultural show called the Balmoral Show. And the minister of agriculture has to host a breakfast, big breakfast, before I pin on uh, wards on the, on the heifers and all that sort of stuff. Terrified me. Anyway, <laughs> and, and, and the farmers always watch to make sure I'm eating that which they produce and I'm eating that and, and doing the beef, the BSE business, the beef was a crisis, later on there was a big crisis. I could never eat fish except when I got down to the coast where the fishermen were and then they wanted me to eat fish to make sure I eat it. Anyway, so, so I had this big Balmoral breakfast and you had, you had porridge and they had bacon, eggs, black pudding, steak, sausage, you name baked beans, you name the lot. And you have to eat through the lot and then make a speech. <laughs> and it was absolutely delicious, but as I say, a heart attack on the plate. <laughs> 
uh, absolutely delicious. But it was too much of it. I couldn't function afterwards. But, but I had to because the farmers were all around, all the, the farmers' unions, they're all there watching it. Uh, delicious stuff, absolutely superb stuff. But I didn't want it all in one meal. <laughs> I understand a bit much. But those, those are sort of two of the real, real highlights, both the Longestine meal and then these, these Balmoral breakfasts, which I did every year. So I did about three of them. And uh, Northern Ireland food is terrific, absolutely terrific stuff. You know, the quality is high, the weather is good, the grass is excellent, the beef is first class. Generally, you can get really good food in Northern Ireland. And the basic stuff, I mean, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean it's not Michelin three-star stuff, but it's basic stuff, and, uh, but it, it is really good. Mm. And, and I, can't, I can't applaud the Northern Ireland gastronomy more highly. It is really good. It's, it's good in the Republic as well. I mean, it's, the whole of Ireland's mm. got really good food. I was going to ask you, Lord Dubs, about, um, obviously you yourself are a refugee and you were an advocate a lot for refugees. How important do you think food is for kind of helping sustain a connection back to whichever country someone has, has left? I mean, is it something that's very important or do you think food can kind of, is able to be sort of cast aside if, if no. people move on? Oh, no, no, it's, no it, it can't be cast aside at all. I think it's absolutely fundamental. After all, some of the Syrian refugees I've heard of have opened up small Syrian restaurants and, and they, they are pretty good and they produce their own food because that's the way they can become small entrepreneurs and make their way in the British economy. Mm. And it's one of the most straightforward ways they can do it. But I, I think it's also important because a lot of people who migrate to Britain like to be able to retain the food of their own country. And that's why we've got so many shops that sell that sell the bits and pieces with which one can make the food from the Middle East or, or the Southern Asia or, or whatever it is. So I think it is very important. It gives them a sense that they can feel it, get used to Britain, but say being used to their own food, that they can often achieve things in the economy, they can produce it, they can invite friends, and they can treat some of us to, 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 to really, really good stuff, which is why we have so many, so many places in, in this country. And, and as each wave of refugees has come, they, they, they bring with them their own sort of gastronomy. Mm. And, uh, has, and have helped improve British food a huge well amount. That, well, that's, that, <laughs> that's happened, of course. Although the interesting thing is, I was told some time ago that maybe it's not true anymore, but a lot of the Indian restaurants actually run by Bangladeshis, and the Bangladeshi men, I may, may not be right on this, but this is what I was told way back, the Bangladeshi men, not, not necessarily refugees, but just migrants, the Bangladeshi men don't have a catering tradition in, in, in Bangladesh, but they come here and they, and, and they do, do the food here. So it's one of the few examples where, where migrants acquire the skill in the country they've moved to rather than they brought it with them. But normally migrants bring their skills with them, mm. whether it's Jewish refugees who brought Jewish-type food into, into East End, or whether it's the Syrians or even Afghans. But particularly the Syrians, they brought a lot of the brilliant Middle, Middle Eastern food with, with mm. them. And, and it's lovely to hear of, of some of the refugees setting up their own businesses and to do that. Mm. You now divide your time between West London and the Lake District. Uh, where do you like to eat now? You mean in which of those two or in all? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not going to make you choose. Where, where do you enjoy eating generally well, I tell you what, I those two tell places? You a little story in Hammersmith in King Street, there is a fish and chip place which we occasionally go to, OK? Off King Street, just near Ravenscott Park. I looked at the menu and the fish, the portions are wonderful. The fish is absolutely it's sizzling and then they come from... And, and I said, well, how come, you, how come you, have, you have Turkish coffee in a fish and chip place? Oh, that's because we're Turkish. You're Turks? Well, we're actually Kurds. Oh, I said, which part? Anyway, it turned out I'd been to the part of 
eastern Turkey they came from. And the, the puddings came free after that. So. <laughs> but but, the, but the, the, food, the food was lovely. You know, for Kurds, Kurds to come to Britain and, and make superb fish and chips is quite something, except the size of the portions. So that, that's pretty good. That, that's probably one of my favourites in, 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 in West London anyway, other than if, if I ever just, if we push the boat out to something very posh, but that's different. <laughs> and then in Cumbria, well, our part of Cumbria, there's some good ones. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a veg, I'm not a vegetarian, there's a vegetarian restaurant called the Quinson Meddler in Cockermouth, which is it's a lovely sort of traditional, sort of almost Jane Austen style place. A lovely wallpaper, lovely couple who run it. Delicious, delicious food. As somebody said, it's so good you don't notice it's vegetarian. <laughs> With my apologies to my vegetarian friends. <laughs> lovely place to go there. And there's some other good ones. There's a place near Bassenthwaite called the Distillery, which is sort of a local whiskey or gin distillery or something. And they have a restaurant there. And they've got an open air part as well. And, and, and that's, that's pretty good food as well. And do you like to cook yourself? Limited. I'm pretty limited on that. What are your What are your dishes when you do cook? No, oh, that's that's really pushing it a bit. <laughs> isn't it? Well, look, simple things, simple things, right? I mean, I, I'm not talking about heating things up. But, uh, no, I think. Well, give me some sea bass or something, and I can fry it gently, and I can get some parboiled potatoes and put them in and uh, and, and have them with that, and and then I can do some cabbage or whatever it is. I can steam steam them, and that's all very simple. That's not nothing very sophisticated. Simple stuff for me. Sorry to disappoint you. No, 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 that sounds delicious. <laughs> and what's comfort food for you? Uh, well, comfort food. Well, I suppose I like... Uh, <laughs> actually, I quite like chocolates. <laughs> probably, probably that's a throwback to the war when there wasn't any, you see. So mm. I, I probably make... I average out and make up for the chocolate. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't, didn't, have, didn't have one when I was, when I was a child. I like I like a nice apple, a brownie apple pie. I like with with a bit of yogurt on it. I quite like that. What else is comfort food? I love a breakfast. I love lots of fruit piled up with granola and and yogurt and stuff. And to finish on your dubs, what what would be your desert island meal if you had one meal? What would it be? Well, if it weren't if it weren't a repeat of the longestine, I <laughs> <laughs> you North, can have the longestine again. Uh, <laughs> Northern Ireland was. It's hardly, hardly, hardly a desert. Island. I mean, it was not that I was part of a wider experience of all sorts of all sorts of things happening. Some awful and some good. And I suppose one's memory of a good meal there is mixed up with bad things happening occasionally. But a peace process that eventually worked out worked out pretty well. Oh, I don't know. I suppose we were on holiday in France and we went to a two-star Michelin restaurant and that was pretty good. Three-star, almost too rich, but two-star was absolutely in in, in Burgundy. And that was—I I can't remember what it was. It was just so delicious. But I think it was some, some French French thing. But what would be my 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 dream meal? Is that what, really what you're asking? I think if it was as good and fresh as the longestine I had I had in in Northern Ireland that time, I think it'd be hard to beat that with a, with a decent chablis. Delicious. Would you have pudding? Oh, I would have put. Yeah, yeah, I would. Well, I'd probably have something, something chocolatey, but not. Too, yeah, I like most puddings. If, if, curiously, if I don't want too sweet, but I like, I like puddings. Yeah, I would. Whether it's fruit or whether whether it's apple, apple pie, apple tart, or even some of the more traditional things. Yeah, all right. Lord Dub, thank you very much for joining Table Talk. I'd like to tell you about The Takeaway, the new food and drink newsletter from The Spectator. 
Each month, I'll bring you recommendations straight to your inbox, focusing on the best things to eat, drink, try, read and listen to from The Spectator and beyond. You can sign up to The Takeaway by going to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Olivia Potts. Oh,